0: Hi again, everyone. Thanks again for the download. This is Tim. Just a quick reminder all our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, our webpage, RadioMVP.com, and just about anywhere or any app that you use to download podcasts. Today, my special guest is Jeff Sachs. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. The man, the myth, the legend, Jeff Sachs. The Sachs man and I go back to about 1995 in Warren, Ohio, working for WRRO 1440 as Jeff and I shared the airwaves, talking sports on the weekends. Jeff also had, has had an amazing career as a teacher and a broadcaster in Cleveland, Ohio. We talk about him covering the Cleveland Indians and the Cavaliers in the 90s and going up and through LeBron James' era. Jeff and I also get into discussions, as two friends will always do, about politics and other things going on in the world and give our views on what's going on and how things have taken shape. So sit back and enjoy this conversation conversation I have with one of my favorite people in the world in broadcasting and just favorite person overall in Jeff Sachs. He's really, truly one of amazing person that you're going to enjoy. Podcast goes a little longer than most, but that's what happens when two friends get together and start talking. So sit back and enjoy this conversation I have with the Sachs man, Jeff Sachs, right here on Radio MVP. Hi again, everyone. I'm Tim, of course, and this is Radio MVP. and this is one of my one-on-one opportunities. And this time I get to talk with an old friend of mine from uh, my days in radio in Warren, Jeff Sack, especially known as the Sack Man, who we love dearly, those who have known him throughout the years. If you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He's the man, the myth, the legend, Jeff Sack. And he used to say that uh, often on the airwaves, and we used to have a great time. On Saturday mornings, I used to uh, precede you or follow you many Saturday, Sunday yes. afternoons. On the w-
1: days of W-R-R-O and Warren yeah. uh, At 10,000 watts, we hit uh, half the
0: hallway and all the way to the lunchroom, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. And if it didn't rain, we were able to have buckets everywhere to, to catch the water. <laughs>
1: I was there during the shift when the ceiling collapsed and the control board died in the middle of my show. (laughs) That was one of the high points of my life in radio, I must say. I have never seen people scrambling so madly in my life. It was an amazing moment. But we got back on the air, I think it was less than 24 hours later. They did a great job. Good old times and good old memories,
0: my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, just... uh... Doing a little everything, freelancing as I always have been for about the last 15, 20 years, Uh, taking the jobs wherever they may be, you know, on the road. I've been fortunate enough to do uh, high school sports over the last 20 years uh, in Western Pennsylvania and Northeast Ohio, and uh, someone gives me a call and says, hey, I need someone in Columbus today. I says, all right, I got the equipment, just let me know.
1: (laughs) And I know high school football has always been a big passion and love for you over
0: the years. Yeah, it is, and it's it still is, and it's a lot of fun, and I've been fortunate enough over the years uh, to do it here in Northeast Ohio and Western Pennsylvania the last few years. I've met some amazing people along the way, as you know, and that's really the story to me. Not just the kids on the field, but uh, some of the, the people you meet and the legends of the different areas of the, of the area, and it's amazing because you meet so many people. You can go and they do so, so many different things within their community. And I don't want to really pick out any one person and say, oh, they did this and they did that. But really, that's one thing I've learned over, over the years of doing high school sports is it's more than just uh, the, the game itself. It's the people that you meet along the way and go from the coaches to, to the staff to, uh, to the people of the administration. You just never know who you're going to meet along the way.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it all starts at at the top of the organization and goes down. If You've got a strong coaching staff and and people who believe in their students and people who believe that they are making a contribution to the community by serving the purpose that you're serving in. uh, That's what makes everything worthwhile. And it's what keeps on reviving our most precious natural resource, which is our children.
0: Absolutely, without question. Jeff, one of the things I wanted to get into is I know you have had the opportunity over the years to cover the Cavaliers and the history of the Cavs, and you're not from Northeast Ohio originally. Of course, you're from the, the Northeast originally in Boston, and Mr. Boston, as you've known many times. Uh, just talk about you making that transition for yourself, how you ended up in Northeast Ohio and Cleveland in Warren and other places and and getting involved and just becoming the personality that you you were on air?
1: Well, uh, we ended up moving to Cleveland because of job opportunities for my wife. And uh, I had been in retail for most of my adult life and decided to go back to school uh, at a vocational school then known as the Ohio Center for Broadcasting. I believe it's called the Ohio Media Center Uh, nowadays, uh, was fortunate enough to hook up with a man who I will always consider my mentor, Les Levine, uh, who in those days was was back at the glory days of station WHK in Cleveland and uh, putting on, to me, the most entertaining sports talk in the city of Cleveland. I would say Les and Bill Needle would probably be uh, the two people that I, I would like to say I tried to base my career on uh, intelligent men, articulate men, uh, and not swayed by uh, public opinion or or anything else. They just always told the truth and tried to conduct intelligent sports talk shows on the air. And I like to think that I did the same thing in my own way. came, I went to work for Metro Networks, and I... First started as uh, one of the old 2020 ticker guys on WKNR back in the day when we were doing 24-hour tickers. Uh, My boss gave me a chance to take over the Cleveland Indians beat back in 1995, which was absolutely a godsend because we know what kind of a magical year that was. Uh, He was so pleased with the way that I handled the Cavaliers that he then gave me the Browns, excuse me, the Indians, that he then gave me the, the uh, Browns and Cavaliers beat and I eventually became sports director for Metro Networks. Uh, still a huge Indian fan, a huge Cavaliers fan. I never ever uh, have found any affinity for Cleveland Browns the sequel as I like to call it. Uh, I think the real Cleveland Browns are, are still playing in Baltimore and uh, was not happy with Al Lerner uh, or Randy Lerner when, when they took over the team and uh, unfortunately, right now, I, I see a team that is willing to settle for sold out stadiums every Sunday, but they really don't have any incentive to improve their team. They really don't have any incentive to make the playoffs. Uh, it all starts, again, Tim, as I just said, from the, from the head down. And to this day, the Cleveland Browns have never had what I consider a frontline general manager or frontline head coach. And you're not going to win if you don't have those two pieces in place. But the Cavaliers and the Indians were always very, very special to me. And, of course, the Cavaliers winning it all uh, back in 2016 uh, made me just as ecstatic as if I was still living uh, in the city of Cleveland and still covering the team. My only connection with that team, really, at that point, was LeBron. Andy uh, Barajal had stuck around for a number of years, but he had already been treated by by 2016, Uh, but I still have, you know, a lot of people in the organization that I've gone through the years with, and it's a team that I have always rooted for and was incredibly, incredibly pleased to see the jinx broken, and unfortunately, Cleveland fans, including myself, are going to be going through kind of a transition period over the next, at least the next year and probably the next couple of years. But I want to harken back to the Cleveland Cavaliers that I first started coming A team that was called by Ricky Davis playing in a cold and empty arena. Of course, we all remember Ricky Ronway Davis, who uh, mm-hmm. tried to get his own assist uh, to get a triple-double. And, of course, scored on the opponent's basket, uh, so he didn't get that triple-double. But that was a team that was really – what's the word I'm looking for? Dysfunctional would probably be – the best word I, I can think of at this point. But you have players like Lamon Murray. Lamon Murray had a lot of talent and a lot of skills. But the Cavaliers are in the basement. They're a lottery team for years and years and years. The only thing he worried about was his team shirt wasn't featured in, in the team shop. Where are your priorities? I, it, it never made sense to me. A team, players like Clarence Weatherspoon, jaded veteran who spent a year with, with the Cavaliers. You know, uh, Trajan Langdon, uh, Sagana Jop. I remember after Jim Paxson drafted Sagana Jock. It was a year after he drafted Trajan Lange. And he said to us, collective media, I can't win. I draft a college senior. I'm called an idiot. I draft a high school senior. I'm called an idiot. And I turned to my old colleague, Bob Fanay, who was then covering the uh, the NBA for the News Herald, and I said, it's not the ages of the player, it's the quality of the player that counts. And if you start drafting some good quality players, nobody would be complaining about what year they are or how old they are uh, and how much experience they are. That was the problem. Of course, luck struck Cleveland big time in 2003. And we saw the circus come to town and it was an incredible, exciting ride. I was there through uh, the 2006 season and came back and covered the 2007 uh, NBA finals. Of course, the Cavaliers were swept in four games as they just were by Golden State. And I can remember and still have on tape somewhere, a very desolate conversation with Zatouni Okalski, is one of the guys that I always admired and looked up to. After they had lost, Z was sitting in in the locker room of Game 4, and I probably had a 20-minute conversation with him, and he he said, you know what, the NBA pundits, the NBA critics are going to pick us as an also-ran starter next season, and sure enough, he was right. And unfortunately, they didn't make it back to the NBA Finals uh, during that part of LeBron D's run, and as you well know, I have uh, castigated young Mr., not, not so young Mr. James, many, many times all over the years for his decision to go and take his services to South Beach. But I look back on it now, and, and Tim, I, I think though we in the media and we as fans thought he had the ability, the skills, the prowess, the mindset to take a team to the NBA Finals. He didn't believe that. And just like he went to, uh, you know, SVSJ because his buddies were all going there. He went to Miami because of Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch. And he finally developed that quote unquote, killer instinct that he always said Kobe Bryant had and he lacked. He came back, he fulfilled his promise. He said in 2003 that he was going to make Cleveland light up like Vegas and he fulfilled the promise. And he brought this team to the show four straight years. Pretty impressive statistic. It's not been repeated all that often in the history. You go back to teams like the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, and of course the Chicago Bulls, but they're a rarity. And though they lost three times in the show, they still made it there four years straight, and they played a team that because of free agency and because of the NBA salary cap and the NBA salary tax, and they were willing to overpay and to pay this luxury tax that other teams wanted to avoid, they built themselves a heck of an organization. And you know what? You gotta give them credit. The Golden State Warriors were a Bush League team from the time they had, um, can't think of his name, the guy threw uh, his his jump shots underhand. Darn.
0: I know you're man. taking. I'm terrible names too nowadays. So it's all right. Yeah. Um, both his sons
1: played the NBA as well. In fact, one of his sons ended up working as an analyst for for ESPN. But I'm blanking on the name. I can see his face in front of me. But they went and, and you know they went and, and became a lottery bound team for close to thirty years. And then Oracle bought them, and they decided we're going to do what's right. They brought in Jerry West as a consultant, one of the greatest and brightest basketball minds in the history of the NBA, and they built themselves a greater organization. And you've got to give them credit. They they took the rules, and they played with the rules, and they were able to kind of circumvent the rules by paying that luxury tax. So they played it fairly. I, you know, it it may not be what we NBA purists would like to see and more parity in the NBA, but they've taken advantage of of the rules that are out there right now. I would get rid of the luxury uh, sales tax immediately. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, there shouldn't be a a salary cap. If a team wants to pay as as much money as as they want, and, and maybe even go into debt so be it. If, if it means that much to get an NBA championship and they're willing to risk their, you know, they part of the team or their investment
0: in the team, let them go for it. That's a really interesting point there. You know, one of the things i found odd in sports in general, especially when you talk about the NBA, who was the first league to get to a salary cap, you mm-hmm. know, in professional sports, it was really kind of odd. When you think about this, that the players and the owners came to this agreement. It was like the owners came to the player and say, "We need a salary cap, and it's not just because we want to retard uh, salaries, which really it wasn't about that. It was more to keep them, the owners, in a constraint from oh, going, good. you know, crazy." It was more like saying, "Well, ourselves. I ha- someone needs to control me, you know, and, and if we work on this together, we'll both become rich and be famous and." We'll, we'll accrue all our goals in the same of building a team and being successful and, and, and raising a championship banner or, or a trophy. And, you know, every owner, that's the first thing they can't wait to get their hands on because that's their own symbol of success beyond exactly. what they've done in business. And they want exactly. that, that egocentric uh, thing out front. Obviously, we see that with the Cavaliers in the last, you know, 10 years. The, the current ownership, and you've seen that in every sport, in any ownership. Jerry Jones is obviously one of the, the most forefront egomaniacs in sports, and there's been many over the years. As you know, it goes all the way back to the, really the 70s, I think, when television really took over sports and became a, a major driver of uh, e- economics and how it becomes. But, yeah, I agree. It's, it's amazing that they, the players and the owners themselves had to come to an agreement to kind of control each other in that. And the NBA was the first to really to do that, to, to pay the way for a, a salary cap. And then they found ways to exploit it. You know, the Larry Bird rule, and maybe yep. uh, the greatest exploitation of, of a, a salary cap of all time.
1: Absolutely, another loophole, and they and they took advantage of it. And it's funny that you mentioned the 70s, because I would agree with you at a thousand percent. You can think of two, uh, professional sports team owners that really came into their own and dominated the sports in the 70s, Al Davis with the Oakland Raiders and George Steinbrenner with the New York mm-hmm. Yankees, they became Perfect bigger examples. Than the game. They became bigger than the game. All of a sudden, with a cult of personality, and Davis and Steinbrenner were more identified with their individual franchises than their quarterbacks, or let's say a Reggie Jackson or a Sparky Lyle or a Thurman Munson or whoever else. It was George's team, it was Al's team. And some people loved him and some people hated him. Uh, it was usually the teams that rooted against them were the people that hated him, but if they were on your side, you absolutely loved them for what they were able to accomplish.
0: Al Davis is probably the one person, and I haven't read any books on him, and I'm not sure there's been that many written about him, but he is probably the, the more interesting of the two in my mind because here's a guy who came up through football ranks as a football coach and then got into ownership, became a, a, a commissioner of a league while being involved in all three aspects uh, in the old AFL and then moving into yep. you know really ownership and exploiting ownership and using economics as a reason for – what well, we've seen movement of teams in the 70s and 80s and 90s you know and obviously we've seen it with our own Cleveland Browns you know during that right. that you know 95 time, you know mm-hmm. period where uh, Modell took the team to uh, baltimore and i mean to me he's the study of a, of a, of an owner i mean george was the egomaniac i mean he had the biggest market he was never going to move them obviously sure. and you know what you know his desire to win was honestly there but I mean his desire to be out front and be the boss was more important to him I think than the championships it was just a way to truly uh make him his satisfy his ego and his needs but I mean obviously I guess that's what you get in sports in America because we have ownership of teams by individuals or corporations while I guess I'm not real familiar with this Jeff maybe you are but like in Europe and other parts of the world, it's not necessarily individuals that own it. It's more of a, a collection. Of I, I think people so. that own it. Again, yeah. Again, I'm
1: I'm not a big soccer fan, or the rest of, as the rest of the world calls it. But you hear about teams like Manchester United and and some of the teams in, in Ireland and, and some of the. It does seem to be either a con uh, some sort the of consortium,
0: I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and again, on Al Davis, you know, this was a guy who was basically an outcast in the NFL. Uh, I still remember, I'm sure you do as well, when Pete had to give Al Davis the, you know, the champion, uh, the trophy at the Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, the look on his face was he wanted to mildly vomit. And uh, Al Davis had the last laugh. And he took the team to Los Angeles, as you just inferred, and then brought them back to Oakland. And who the heck knows where they're going to end up next, uh, even though he's not long gone.
0: But uh, his son is still running the team. And
1: they had Vegas is next for them,
0: supposedly. You know, they're building uh, well. a $2 billion stadium for them in, in Las Vegas. So it's amazing. And now, that,
1: and now that the NHL has broken that taboo by putting a team in there, Las Vegas market is ripe for, you know, uh, the expansion of the NBA, the expansion of
0: the NFL, and probably an expansion of Major League Baseball in a dome stadium. And King, just on that level, uh, we just had that breakthrough this past week, where the NBA became uh, had an agreement. I think it was with MGM about the rights to uh, the bet on their teams. You know, with the yes. Supreme Court ruling basically putting uh, sports gambling in any jurisdiction of any state that chooses to use it, to do. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I know the rest of the world, that's normal in their sporting world. But in, in the United States, as you know, uh, the only legal sports betting was done in Vegas. And of course, many people, including in my town of Youngstown, uh, have had uh, the underworld uh, sports betting for many years and you know i like of, course, to make fun of it but um my point is just that it's just it has, we're seeing a new new evolution of, of sports and how it's all intertwined uh daily fantasy sports is probably the biggest gambling circus that's out there right now i mean mm-hmm. i don't know how familiar you are with it but the the money that's involved on daily basis that people are "Quote unquote, playing a fantasy game, but are putting you know quite a few dollars every day on it. Anything from a dollar to thousands of dollars per day. There's million dollar prizes available, and it's amazing, you know, how this has all uh, become more has changed and Yeah, has really changed the uh, the process of sports. I think more than any before. I think now we hear more about point spreads and and." Uh, betting edges than we've ever had before. And you go back into the 70s when we had Jimmy the Greek on CBS every week talking about teams and the edges and this and that, had this big scoreboard. And I don't think any of us at the time realized what he was – I think we did, but we didn't pay attention to it. We were more concerned about, oh, my team is favorite. You know, this is why. And then as you got – at least maybe for me because I was young in that day. I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12 years old in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, you realized it was more of a betting edge and, and how much that became part of sports. And now you look at like I say, today, it's huge. It's it's amazing how, how this is going to change. It's going to be I'm interested to see how reporters deal with it on a daily basis that cover teams and how teams handle the situation now. Because let's face it, uh, maybe not in Ohio yet, but like Pennsylvania, which has you know the Flyers and the Steelers and you know, sure. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh sports. I mean, they all have casinos, and they and they all will be offering sports betting here in the next, uh, probably starting in September. I would
1: think so. Uh, the
0: one in downtown
1: Cleveland, you don't think it's going to open up? Their
0: own I don't think the state of Ohio has, a, has uh, sanctioned it yet through any okay. bill. So I think it has to go through the state house and be signed into law to allow it because then they can – well, generate their own revenues from that, sure, and sure. and that's you know where it begins and ends really, and that's probably why we're seeing it, because it's such a, a huge part today. And I've talked to more people now who say that it's almost kind of makes me kind of sad as a competitor of a sports that if I don't have something on the game, I'm not interested in the game, and we're seeing more and more of that. I mean, years ago you knew the person who was that way. Now we're seeing, I think, a larger community of that or a larger portion of the population more concerned about trying to win their parlay versus uh watching and competing and and rooting for a team
1: most of my friends uh who are still in the media have been involved in fantasy sports for years i've got a lot of former students who are avid fantasy sports followers i never got into it i just never understood the concept of rooting against my own team uh, it, it comes down to a, you know three seconds left in the fourth quarter and, and a player that I've got on another team is going to beat the Patriots uh, that's small consolation as far as I'm concerned yeah it's a great you know stipend to get back and, and it's great money wise but I've, I've never been able to break myself away from the team loyalty aspect and I guess that's why it's never appealed to me I do however have a, a problem with the possibility of gambling in sports, because who the heck knows now where that could possibly lead to? We've already seen NBA referees uh, who were accused of, of fixing the game and taking right. bets on the game. Uh, I, I just see this as a opening doors, box to more of that on all four major league sports in this country, and, and that concerns me. Uh, you don't want to think that these games are tainted in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the NBA for years has had accusation that it's fixed. We can go all the way back to Patrick Ewing being drafted and the right. quote unquote frozen envelope. Uh, I've never seen any any indication of it. I covered the NBA for 11 years on scene. I then covered the NBA uh, for another seven years uh, via my website, uh, Pro Hoop Central. And I never have seen any indication that it was not up and up except for the, the, uh, the referees that we just talked about. I don't want to worry about whether something is fixed, whether, whether it, what we're seeing on the screen or what we're seeing on the court is not actually what's taking place, that it's being manipulated somehow. And I think by, by opening this box, we're we're opening ourselves to all sorts of problems that could arrive down the line. Though I again, it's going to be a great source of revenue for the states. Uh, the taxes alone, it, it will probably make a lot of states solvent that aren't currently. So there's a plus and minus with, with the situation. Absolutely,
0: there's no doubt about it. I mean, let's face it. Today's society, when you're talking about tax base has changed so much. And, you know, the, the way taxes are done, and I, I, I'm no expert on that, but the, the tax cuts and the, and the changing of uh, value systems that we have, where we put our monies, uh, and, you know, if it's not just your roads and schools and stuff like that, it's states have gotten to a point now that they have to find new revenue sources that the people will accept or how they can sell it. the people saying this is a a, an acceptable way
1: and that's why we've seen retail uh, marketing of marijuana in california now in massachusetts just a couple of weeks ago of course it started with colorado and washington state and it's becoming more and more prevalent colorado is, is having a boom they're now sending their their citizens back rebates every year yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Whether you're pro-marijuana or anti-marijuana, just think of the, the revenue that's accrued each and every day by retail selling. So again, we go back to you know the, the, the gambling and you're gonna be accruing a lot of revenue and it's going to help with hopefully our schools and our roads and our infrastructures. Uh, to me, our collapsing infrastructure should be the big issue that the Democrats uh, campaign on in this fall. Uh, I think it's a winning ticket. I have talked about reinvigorating, reopening up the WPA, which was the Work Projects Association under the Roosevelt administration, which put people to work fixing our roads, fixing our, our highways, fixing our bridges, fixing our airports. We are one of the most prosperous nations in the world, and we are dealing with an infrastructure that hasn't been repaired since the days of Eisenhower. To me, it's a, no, it's a win-win, no-brainer situation. It's going to give people jobs instead of handouts. It's going to fix our infrastructure. It's going to help private enterprise as well because of all the raw materials need. not to mention contractors such as plumbers and electricians and and all the specialty work that's going to go into it. I, I see that as what should be the number one issue of the first part of the 21st century. It should be our moonshot. When Americans have a goal, when we're all on the same page, whether it be beating the Axis powers in in World War II, whether it be sending a man to the moon by 1970, we pulled together. And that's when our social issues dissipate. And that's when we start to come together as a country and we start to see things on the same page. And right now, unfortunately, we're in a malaise, as Jimmy Carter talked about back in 1978. Uh, And that led to our current dysfunctional, political, and really societal issues in 2018 i
0: can't disagree with that i wish i could <laughs> um, <laughs> here's you know what you brought up is and i think the the most important thing you brought up there and something that we really haven't seen since the 60s we've seen parts of it at different times in our country but we haven't had it since we had the goal of landing a person on the moon and and returning him safely. I think we had it briefly in the 80s with the shuttle exploration and the building of that and and doing it and being successful at it as as unfortunately as the tragedies that did happen in that program. But it was still a, a major pride for our country and there wasn't really division on that. That was really bipartisan. Everyone believed in it. Everyone wanted to see that exploration and and learn more about the the universe, and and use it for advantages of the United States, militarily and otherwise, that they did at the time. And today, you know, in politics, this is where I think the division that you were talking about has become so divisive that we don't have, like, if you had a goal to, let's just say they were put a brand new interstate, from the East Coast to the West Coast. I don't care if it's train or automobile, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. And there would be such divisiveness within the ranks of both parties that we oh, could cool. not, we would not get it done. While years ago, I think that ability to say, this is what we're gonna do. And you know, this is what I think uh, Barack Obama ran up to when he said, now's the time for us to invest when we were trying to come out of that devastating disaster that he inherited in the economy, because now's the time to invest, to put people to work and, and build off of that and, and refund our infrastructure. We just didn't do it. Uh, unfortunately, the the politics involved was like, if he's successful in this, we'll never end it. And we have to stop it before it begins. And we have that in healthcare too. If it if it's can be successful, if it can't help the community in general, and I mean the community, the nation, uh, we have to stop it before it gets better because then people will want more and expect more from us. And that goes across the board on both on both levels. This is not one. you know if we stop this, we'll, we'll prevent that. That is one of the the major concerns I think we've seen. You know, I go back, I talk to this with others, and well, that's politics is the way it works. I because no, it's not because if you go, you know I go back to I was young in the Jimmy Carter era, you know, when he lost to Ronald Reagan. I was probably about 14 years old. So I grew up in the Reagan era as a teenager and all that. And I remember very much how Tip O'Neill used to say, this is a disaster policy, Mr. President, you're not helping the country. Yet, he would go out and say, you're the president, if this is your policy, I will help you create your policy. Even though they were on opposite sides of the table. And yes, he, you know, there were some give and takes and they tried to get things done. I had the same vine he was says you want your tax cuts we'll get it it may not be the best thing for the country and you know maybe it was it did give us a huge bonus at the time and did spark the the economy you know in the in the early 80s from the inflations that we had at the time however uh, that ability to work across the aisle kind of ended and in, in, in the Reagan era You know, as that eight years went on, I think that the bisonists came in and then, you know, from that point on, you can even say during the Bush era, Bush 41, through today, we've seen this decisiveness where you can't get anything accomplished. I go back to the Bush era and I say, you know, when he passed the tax increase because he knew he needed the revenue for the country Mm -hmm. and it was the correct move to make, he lost millions within his party. And that's the hardest part to accept is when you make a good decision and then you have so many divisive people who want to prove you wrong or to demonize you to the point that you cannot succeed or the next generation has even a harder chance to succeed. And I think that's where in general where we're at today, not even going, you know, we, I can get off on, on politics about what's going on today and we probably could talk for hours about that. What's going on in general? I, I, thats the way I see it. I'm very curious of how your your vantage point of your years and what you've seen. You know, uh, what do you agree and disagree with me. Well, let's go back to the, the example that you just mentioned, Poppy
1: Bush, uh, breaking his promise of read my lips, no new taxes, and he lost the presidency because of that, but probably saved the country because we did need that revenue right now. And that was the impetus for the glory years under Bubba, Bill Clinton. If it wasn't for that tax increase and the groundwork that he laid, Bill Clinton probably would have dealt with a recessionary economy. But because George H.W. George Bush had the strength of his convictions and realized this is what the country needs and it may make me a one-term president, we had the glory years of the 90s and we've watched this country progress to the point where we had a budget surplus when George W. Bush took over in in 2001. And I I don't think that Poppy gets the credit for that, just like I don't think that Barack Obama right now is getting the credit for the impetus that gave Donald basically a, a wonderful start to begin his presidency in January of 2017. Job numbers have been going up for five straight years, and Donald kept saying, "You know, phony numbers. Uh, you know, th- this stuff is all made up." But it was very funny that in February of two thousand seventeen, when the thirty job numbers came out, all of a sudden the statistics were real. It, it yeah. just, you know, from from one extreme to the other, and nobody ever questions it. Uh, I, I believe right now that he is in the process of trying to strangle. the the goose that laid the golden eggs. Uh, Number one, the the tax cut that he originally said was going to hurt him and his peers uh, have done anything but. Uh, We have seen corporate taxes lowered to the point where we are now dealing with the highest uh, national deficit in our country because of the, the lack of tax revenue that's now coming to this government. Uh, we are. We saw the Trump family get about a billion dollars back uh, in things that they won't have to pay over the next 30, 40 years. Uh, this helped the 1% and did not really help the middle class people all that much. Uh, and now we've introduced tariffs, which is basically a tax, and the Republican Party is, is it's adamantly against it, as, as most Americans. Uh, and I go back to the old son. From when we were kids, there was not an old woman who swallowed the fly. And I believe that's what he's doing right now with this this uh, payout, $13 billion or $12 billion to uh, compensate our farmers That Even Ben Sass is calling gold enemy right now. He manufactures problems, and then he tries to solve them. And unfortunately, the problems weren't there to begin with, but he gets lionized by his acolytes for solving these problems. And that kind of bothers me. I I, I think we are going right now through a series of situations where we can't trust many of our public leaders. And if we can't trust them, Why do we have a federal government? It it doesn't make any sense to me. To me, the the federal government was always the safety net, and the president was always our consoler in chief okay? No matter how much we had disdain with presidents, I'm talking even Richard Nixon, who was before your time, but I remember quite well. Even he, at this point, would have addressed the nation, and, talked about solving our differences and talked about becoming one again. Instead, we have a divider in chief in, in Donald Trump who wants to castigate as many people as possible and wants to have an us versus them country. This country will fail
0: if we go that route, in my opinion. No, I I agree. What we have is a lack of leadership today versus what leadership we have had in this country in the past now you may disagree with some of the leadership I've, we've had in the past or the philosophies that they've had but they actually being general leaders i believe were there not you know some were a higher degree and some were a lower degree but they actually believe they had a a an agenda and a process that made sense while here we have more of a manic a manic uh running the 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 country who actually cannot see you know in front of them from day to day it's like a a reality show that he came from you know what's the latest thing i can make the buzz about versus what matters and how can it be done let me put blame somebody on something versus let me actually show you the problem and let's try to get answers to fix it Uh, and that's the key nowadays is let's just blame somebody everybody gets a blame i don't care who it is it's the democrats on everything it's uh, Mexico and the immigration on another. It's, yep. it's yep. amazing. Unions and what they have achieved over the hundred, you know, the last 50 years, 60, 75 years that they've been around. And, you know, it's blame, 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 and no process to, to uh, lift people up other than saying they're the bad people, we're the good people, and we're going to do well if you listen to me. And it's a scary thought when you have one person preaching this and thousands and not millions who follow it on a daily basis. And it's blows my mind away. I never thought I would see that day. I really truly did not I always thought it was a, he was a, someone you had to take formidable as the, as what was going on in our country, you know, in the last two years in, in the election, I says, well, he's, as long as he's in contention, you have to pay attention to him. Of course, you know and what was going on but i never thought and there's maybe reasons beyond what we know yet why this is all has happened and i'll let those who are investigating do their job and i'll let go on i have made my statements loud and clear on facebook and other places uh, on that everyone knows where i stand i don't need to preach to them as i wrote on facebook this morning uh
1: that's the beauty of this thing. I don't have to prove that Donald Trump is guilty. I'm sitting back. I'm letting Robert Mueller um, do his job. Now, we can talk about Jim Comey, and I'm not going to give him any love here. Uh, I think he's an e- egotistical guy who thought he was bigger than the system Tried try to get too much of the limelight and had Donald fired him uh, when he replaced all the other intelligent chiefs. I would have had no problem with it, and I probably would have rejoiced the decision. The problem became when he fired him in May, and when he came, had Rod Rosenstein come up with an explanation of why they fired him because of uh, incompetence during the Hillary Clinton case, and then he goes on two days later with Lester Holt and says, well, it was really about this Russia thing. Uh, There's no consistency in these statements, Uh, but I'm gonna let Robert Miller, Uh, do his job, and there is no time clock on a trial. Unlike an NBA game, unlike an NFL game, unlike a Major League Baseball game, uh, there is no time clock. There, It it goes until it is done. So Robert Mueller is not going to allow himself to be pushed by anybody, and he will wait until he gets all the facts in. He's not talking. He hasn't made a public statement yet. He's letting his indictments do all the talking. So far, he's indicted, I believe, 20 people. I believe he has gotten five guilty uh, confessions. And all this has happened in about a year and a half. So I think he's doing uh, more than a credible job. And I am willing to give him the time and, and the resources, whatever it takes, to either condemn Donald Trump or to show that he's absolutely innocent. And if I was Donald Trump, I would want exactly that. If I'm an innocent man and I've got nothing to fear, then I want this investigation to go its full course. I don't want a whip of a shadow of doubt hanging over my head at any time. But we've seen the scenario and and the language and the statements from this administration change like you and I change our socks. First, there was no outside contact with any foreign nationalists. Then it was, well, yeah, we had some contact with some foreign nationalists, but it wasn't the Russians. Then when the meeting came out about the Trump Tower meeting in in, uh, June 16th of 2016, it was, well, it was opposition research, and any politician would have taken that meeting. I I can't think of too many who would, and most politicians have decried that statement. Uh, And it was a nothing burglar, a word that I despise, and it's the first and last time I am ever going to use it. And now all of a sudden it's, well, conspiracy isn't a crime. No, conspiracy is not a crime unto itself. Uh, However, coordination with a foreign entity to fix an election, whether it was successful or not, certainly is a crime. So they just keep muddying the waters and, and trying to give his supporters his act alike the trumpeteers as I like to call them uh, enough evidence that they can say you know what the muddy the waters are much too muddy right now we can't believe anything that's coming out of Robert Mueller's investigation and that's his strategy uh, as of, as of now it does not look like we can indict a sitting president uh, if you know from studying history Richard Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator during Watergate. There are, you know, people on different ends of the spectrum. Some say you can uh, prosecute a sitting president, others say they can only be, you know, tried through the impeachment process. That's something we've never had to bridge before, and I hope we don't have to bridge it again. And to be perfectly honest with you, Tim, deep down in my heart, I hope he's not guilty. I don't want this country to have to go through the trials and tribulations that an impeachment trial will put this country through. We're going to have rioting in the streets. We're going to have bloodshed. We're going to have burning uh, uh, of buildings because there are going to be those trumpeteers, those acolytes that feel their president is getting a uh, raw deal and he's the subject of a witch hunt. The question I keep asking, and nobody yet has been able to give me a satisfactory answer is, why Donald Trump? Why would our intelligence agencies have such a fear of Donald Trump? Why would our bureaucrats now labeled as the deep state have such a fear of Donald Trump? Guy's a brilliant marketer. Guy's a brilliant salesman. As far as I'm concerned, he's a brilliant snake oil salesman. Uh, And he's proven that over the years with Trump University and Trump stakes and uh, all sorts of ventures that have gone bust. Atlantic City we can talk about, we can talk about Puerto Rico, we can We can talk about uh, all sorts of things. Uh, the guy has a, a silver tongue, and he is a great salesman, and he can be very intimidating in person, I've been told, and he can easily sway you uh, to his way of thinking. But other than that, why would the intelligence agencies
0: and the bureaucrats consider this man a danger to the mission that they're on. You know, the, the danger of the mission he's on, that's a great question. And I guess the only answer I have for that is you're always, uh, how can I say, you're always under suspicion no matter who you are by the company you keep. And I think that's where it begins and ends. And no matter who you are, the people that are around you do affect your life and your outcomes. You may get caught up in something that you weren't necessarily planned to be involved with, or you may be associated with something that you had nothing to be involved with because of those who are around you. And that's the only explanation I can give you on that level of, of that answer. And when you look at the investigations that have been brought and the convictions, or I should say, the, the guilty pleas that have been brought and now the the trials that are going on is because of the company that he has kept. And I think that's where it all begins. And I was young and my dad used to always tease me and and always try to correct me. And he used to always tell me when things got tough, he goes, you can't stay in the heat, get out of the kitchen, because that was one of his favorite president's lines and, and, and Harry Truman. Yep. And yep. that's where we're at today As as simple as a saying is that is most of our leaders can't stand the heat. And that goes across the <laughs> board. And I think that's <laughs> where we run into problems is we don't have many who will stand up and, for the convictions or the ethics that are necessary to drive a country to a new goal. And I think that's one of the problems we w- rely on. As uh, more for what's going on with Donald Trump today and the presidency and everything that's going on, I think it starts there when I talked about the company you keep. And it also depends on the desire of what you want to do and how you want to be remembered and what are important to him. Obviously, those things are important to him because of the ego. And that's why he defends himself so rampantly, he doesn't want to be known as the the most illegitimate president of the United States history. And the asterisk it very well could happen. The
1: asterisk president. You exactly. talked about Harry S. Truman just a couple of minutes ago, and we both are well aware of the placard that he used to keep on his desk. The buck stops here. And unfortunately, Donald does not adhere to that tradition. I have had this. I was... Seven years old when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and I lost my innocence at that point and became incredibly politically knowledgeable and involved. and Ended up starting protesting, uh, going to protests for the Vietnam War when I was just uh, in junior high and the beginning of high school. It really became a huge part of my life. And I have had the same for every single president we have had in the White House since John F. Kennedy, starting with Lyndon Johnson, going all the way through Barack Obama. I can name you good things, and I can name you bad things about every president. But I never, except for Nixon, I never doubted their moral integrity. And I never doubted, including Nixon, their love for this country. And I'm not seeing that with this man. Uh, You made a great point. You sleep with dogs, you get fleas, and you know Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, uh, Mike Flynn. Uh, you know that was the company that this man was was keeping, uh, Carter Page, and you know now they're they're all trying to, you know, the Republicans or at least Donald's acolytes in uh, the legislature, both the, the House and the Senate are trying to go back to the Michael Steele dossier and saying that's how this whole thing started when that's absolutely not true. It started because George Papadopoulos opened up his mouth to an Australian ambassador when he was drunk and said, we've got knowledge about Hillary's emails. And that's what started the investigation. And if people just look at this clearly and objectively, I I can't see any other way of looking at this. Uh, the man has benefited himself. You know, everybody talking about the fact that he doesn't take a salary for the presidency and he's sending it to charity. But look how much he's enriched himself, emoluments-wise and policy-wise over the last two years. Why worry about the you know the mere pittance? You know, comparatively to what he's making uh, from from these connections. Uh, of the salary. Give the salary away to charity. You know, make yourself look like, uh, you know, a, uh, a good human being. But we who do a little bit of investigation and, and don't take things at face value, we realize what's really going on in this country, and it's a sad situation. Uh, again, I lived through the 60s and 70s. I saw the poor in this country. My grandfather was our chief. We had up and down screaming at each other over the Vietnam War, over social policy, but he was still my best friend. And as soon as we were done with that, we started talking about the Red Sox. And we had generation gaps in the the 60s and the 70s. Uh, I keep saying that I liken this period more to post-Reconstruction than any other period in our time. Uh, We don't know a lot about Reconstruction in this country. Uh, It's America's dirty little secret. But after the Civil War ended in 1865, uh, we started electing black men as senators and congressmen from down south. And all of a sudden, the black people's status of living got far better. Unfortunately, there were a lot of angry, uneducated, inarticulate, and very poor white people who resented the fact that now people of color had an advantage over them. And that's how the Ku Klux Klan started things, by saying that no matter how poor you are, no matter how uneducated you are, no matter how ignorant you are, you are still better than the richest, wisest black man out there. And we, that took us into the Jim Crow era. We spent the 60s and 70s changing those laws, trying to bridge that gap, getting to the point where after Barack Obama was elected, they were talking about a post-racial society. and We've seen everything but.
0: Yeah, no, I think if anything, it brought a lot of it back to the surface. And we have a, unfortunately, in my opinion, a president leading the brigade of that type of uh, belief system. And obviously, it's not just politically, in my opinion, agenda. It is a, a racial agenda that this man has to try to undo everything that Barack Obama may have achieved during his presidency. And it has nothing necessarily to do with politics as much as the color of the skin. A Barack Obama had. That's the way I see it, and I don't know how it, most people can see it any other way.
1: I think that's a huge part of it. I also think that something you brought up before, Donald's ego, is a huge part of it. He knows that Barack Obama was considered a cosmopolitan, articulate, intelligent man. None of those qualities, unfortunately, apply to Mr. Trump. And uh, so he's now trying to besmirch his name. He started with the birther movement back in 2011. I think a lot of people Tim unfortunately got fearful because all of a sudden there was a, an articulate as I just described in an articulate intelligent cosmopolitan black man, a man of color that deserved to be the president of the United States. It wasn't a fringe candidate anymore. It wasn't the same old, same old guys that we've seen running throughout those years. This was a different man. This was a guy that was just a great orator. Unfortunately, he didn't do that all that often when he was addressing the American people as president, and that's why he got the Mr. Spock and the No Drama Obama uh, labels put on him. But as a campaigner, he was an incredible orator, and he broke my heart in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he promised that he was going to revoke the Patriot Act. He then at, at, uh, added the NDAA, which limited our, our rights even further. He promised that he was going to stop firing, uh by the NSA. And, of course, it became even more uh, complex during his time. Uh, he promised that he was going to uh, end all the wars. And we had at one point three different wars going on in the Middle East under his regime, Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He broke a lot of promises to we, the progressive community, who saw him as a tabula rosa, a blank slate, and we projected all our hopes and dreams onto this man. And he really didn't have enough of a resume that we did it on an intelligent basis. We did it out of emotion, pure and simple. We finally thought we were seeing the resurgence of Robert F. Kennedy back from the grave, and that the world was going to start tilting back on its axis, and everything was going to be great. And as some people have said, it's sad when a presidency's greatest moment is the night that you're elected. But we all expected, you know, with the talk about post-racial society, that we were going to turn into Pleasantville because we did the right thing and we finally evolved enough to vote a black man into the Oval Office. And then when things just didn't work out that way, a lot of people just started getting angry again. And look at what this man did do, though. We had a stock market, the Dow Jones index of 8,000 points, and it had been at 14,000 points under W. He got it up to 20,000 points before he left office. We were on the brink of a huge recession, almost a depression. He Kept the big three open, which John McCain swore he was not going to do. Uh, And he brought back that unemployment down to huge levels uh, that are, are keep going through this Trump administration. But just like I give Poppy Bush credit, for what Clinton did during his presidency. I give Barack Obama the same credit for what Donald lucked into when he came into the White House. You know, he can say it all he wants, and he can say that the statistics were according were before he was elected, and all of a sudden they became kosher when he was elected, but we all know the truth. Or at least those of us who don't think, take things at face value know the truth. Let me put it that way.
0: Yeah, it's a very good point, Jeff. You know, one of the things I've, I've noticed over the years, and this is just one of the, maybe the differences between a Republican and a Democrat, just in the way they present their agendas to to the people. Most Democrats or progressives or liberals, whatever label you want to use, it's it's a huge umbrella to begin with. So you promise a lot. You promise to infrastructure, end wars, and, and to fix the economy, and you're, you got you got a lot of promises out there. Well, what I've noticed with the Republicans and the conservatives, and maybe this is goes to being a conservative, is their goal has always been very minute, very simple: cut taxes, smaller mm-hmm. government, and you know, and, and, and less the regulation. That's all they ever promise. They never promise anything else. While they achieve X amount of those promises every time they're in office, the Democrats or the liberals and the progressives have such a big umbrella to, to get to that they never can achieve at all. Once they get in there and whoever it is, if it's Bill Clinton or if it's Barack Obama or whoever the next progressive, Democrat, liberal president will be, I think what that happens is they get in the office and they recognize what, what volume they have to do and the process that's involved. And I think Donald Trump is finding this out. The process of Congress really suffocates 95% of what you want to do as a president. And you have to pick and choose your battles and what's important. Absolutely. And I think one thing I give a lot of credit to Barack Obama was, is he recognized when he did have a supermajority, which is very rare in American politics, where you had 60 senators and you had a, a Congress that was a Democrat and you had a president who was a Democrat. That maybe the most important issue on the table was health care. And let's put all our t- chips on the table and find out a way to get that done. And they did. It maybe wasn't the greatest plan, but it was a quality plan. And and there's no doubt it passed, and it got through, and there was no, there was no illegitimacy to it. I mean, yes, there was no Republicans in favor, of it and that's just the the suffocation of Congress, if you want to call it, the, the controlling of Congress, where the strong-arming of Congress that we see probably within party now more than ever before, versus like I mentioned back in the 80s where you had at least someone say, all right, this is your program, we're going to do it. I may not like it, we're gonna try to trim it down to this, but we'll go ahead and do your vision because you're the president of the United States. We don't have that no more. We don't have that ability to say, hey, I'm the president, this is what I was elected on, this is what I choose, what we're gonna do. Let's find some common ground and pass it forward as a body. We don't have that no more. Now it's really almost palmitarily where you have a, a, a situation where, Wait, like the tax cuts that just went down this past year. It was all Republicans. Why? Because it's the only way they could get it done. And, you know, it was the giveaway, but they got it done. And they had to pass out every rule possible to get it done and change the rules to get it done, but they got it done. And I, I think what we have in the United States now is three ladder government, you know, in judicial, in con- congressional, and an executive but we act more like a parliamentary uh, type government where one party rules. And once we get through that, I'm not sure how we can get back to the ideas of great things happening, like happened in the sixties where you had Medicare passed and Medicaid and, you know, you have social security, you know, from back in the, uh, the great good deal, you know, the type scenarios that went on in this country right now, it's one party rule, and that's the problem. We can't find common ground at all that you know, one or two people from one or from the other side is not bipartisan. Bipartisan oh. to me is where you got a quality number, let's say 10, 15, 20%, or more from the opposition party to uh, participate and be part of a government. And we don't have that today. We
1: now put party over country. And you've been alluding uh, to the relationship between Dutch Reagan and and Tip O'Neill. And that's a perfect analogy because these guys were polar opposites on on the political spectrum. But Tip O'Neill was a savvy politician, as was Ronald Reagan. And Tip O'Neill realized that the tax rates which were 70% under Richard Nixon 90% under Dwight Eisenhower were draconian and they couldn't keep Continue. on going that way we were we were really hurting the rich people for success so we brought it down to the present levels of 36 38% now they want them lower uh, and again we saw wall street we saw fortune 500 companies thrive during the eight years of barack obama's uh, presidency yet middle-class people have seen their wages stagnate for the last 30 years and there doesn't seem to be any end to that
0: in sight there got to be for the future uh, i may not see it in my lifetime mm-hmm. but those that, who following us you know my uh, my nephews and that generation, that's what matters, you know, now. I mean, I'm at the stage of my life that I'll live out the next 30 years of my life, whatever it may be, hopefully longer. But if not, whatever the case may be, I know where I'm headed. And I know what the situation I've dealt, the hand that I got. It's not going to really much improve when it comes to wages. And I know that. But those who follow us, those the matter. Because I'm, I'm fortunate. Enough. I have family. I have people who are with me throughout my life. But Mm-hmm. Not everybody does, and the struggle that some some people have economically is just, it's, it's frightening to see, because there's no need for it, especially when we consider ourselves the greatest country on Earth, and we have the ability to be it, but we don't always achieve it. Unfortunately,
1: the term
0: American exceptionalism
1: seems to be a misnomer these days, seems to be something from our past, Uh now we've lowered our standards. We've lowered our morals. Uh, we're in a lot of ways like every other country in the world, sometimes like Banana Republics, as we have seen over the past few months. Uh, the divisiveness uh, of the immigration problem in, in this country. My grandfather came to this country in the early 1900s. He was five years old. He took along his three-year-old sister. They traveled that perilous journey on their own. Their mother didn't come to the States for another two years. They were sponsored by family members who already resided in Boston. And that's how they got into this country. It wasn't a merit-based system, okay? That's never been the part of this part of our country. That's not what it says on the Statue of Liberty. Bring us, your poor, you're bedraggled, you're homeless, and, and, and come to this land of opportunity. That's completely void of of any principles we have had in the 432 years or 442 years that we've been you know a nation and to talk about coming to this country on merit uh i don't think donald's parents uh or grandparents would have come would have qualified on on a merit basis and i doubt any of our relatives would have qualified on a merit basis. And who knows where you and I would be living right now were it not for the morals of this country back in the time period when our ancestors came to this country. And I think that these people who are now fleeing scary situations, governments full of turmoil, rioting in the streets, uh, people that we deported back to their countries of origin after serving in the Los Angeles penal system. And, and these countries don't have the resources to deal with, with these problems that, that they are stemming from them coming back. And now our Attorney General has said that domestic abuse and uh, fear of street gangs is no longer uh, a qualifier for getting asylum in this country goes against everything we've ever stood for. I I just can't comprehend it. I just can't comprehend the callousness that we're seeing each and every day in this country. And the one thing I do wanna disagree with you about, Democrat and liberal progressive are two different animals. Liberal Liberal progressives are as said, Democrats come in all shapes, sizes, colors and extremes. Uh, Hillary Clinton certainly was not a liberal. I don't think Barack Obama was what you would call uh, a, uh, a real liberal. They're centrists. they were centrist pragmatists and they played more to Wall Street than they did to Main Street. And I'm not sure how many people are out there that are leaders, that are elected officials in this country That are really concerned about Main Street. We see guys like Bernie Sanders, we see guys like Joe Biden, we see guys like Cory Booker, uh, women like um, Elizabeth Sanders uh, and uh, Kristen Gildebrand and others. Those are the people that do care about working people, that do care about Main Street, that do care about the comings and goings and, and People going to bed and children going to bed every night with a full stomach. Not all Democratic Party subscribes to that, and I, I think that's what hurt Hillary Clinton to a great extent in, in the past election. She seemed this was a woman that was the you know the prototypical liberal in 1992 when Bill Clinton was elected president. He's not the same woman she was then. She she has transformed. She's now a neocon. Uh, she. Now, again, you know, gave all these speeches to to Wall Street and Fortune 500 companies. She would never have thought of doing that in 1992. So I I would say liberal and progressive are a part of the Democratic Party. They're also a part of independence. But I I wouldn't classify all Democrats as liberal progressives. Do you agree? Oh,
0: I totally agree with that, because I know many who refuse to identify themselves either or, or I would put it this way, maybe would rather just call themselves a progressive and not a Democrat. They -hmm. may vote for more Democrats in their lifetime than they do uh, somebody else. But you're right, yes. There's a distinct difference. And there's a distinct difference between a Republican and a conservative too. Not all conservatives are Republicans, I've found out in Mm -hmm. my time. And I wanted to make that statement too. And I know I agree with you. They are they they may be hovered under the umbrella of what the Democrat Party tries to attract to get votes but it's not necessarily uh, exclusive um uh, one or the other the, the Democratic Party needs liberals and progressives to be successful to get elected but not necessarily are the exact same thing I agree there's you can be a Democrat and be totally more centrist or even more socially conservative, or whatever case you may want to call yourself a fiscal conservative, whatever label you love uh, and, and identify by. And I agree with that. You're, you are correct. They're, that, not, they're not intertwined. They're they're separate yet necessary for each. How does that sound?
1: I agree. And I think it's necessary on the local level, if not on a national level. You need to have congressmen or congresspeople, congresswomen, Uh, that represent the district that they are trying to win. They have to have similar views to the the residents of their district. And it's not always going to be liberal and progressive. Sometimes it's just going to be meat and potato issues Uh, on a national level. That's the way I would like to see the democratic party go with, with progressive and liberal ideas. Uh, Again, I, I mentioned fixing the infrastructure to me, That's, as I said, uh, a win-win situation for all involved. And I think the Democrats can run a great campaign on that. Deregulation doesn't help anybody except for corporations. It does not help mom and pop. It does not help the little guy. We saw what deregulation did to our industry, the radio industry, and it has ruined it
0: completely. It's taken away
1: the locality of it. It has taken away the flavor of it. Uh, you know, now everything's going by one of five companies. It should never have gotten that way. And we have Bubba, Bill Clinton, to thank for
0: that one. Yeah. I totally agree. The yeah. Communication Act of 1996 was a complete disaster for the industry. It was great for those who had the money to invest in it. But we're also yeah. seeing, Jeff, you know, real quickly get into that. I don't want it to take up all your afternoon. We're seeing now the bankruptcies of the cumulus and the iHearts. And we'll be interested to see long term, maybe not necessarily short term in the next couple of years, but maybe in the next five, seven, ten years, if these bankruptcies aren't successful in reorganizing their debt, that they will have to go back to a more regional and localism type a scenario which should be great for the industry because competition mm-hmm. as you know is king in all things especially in radio and in communication And right now when you have three competitors basically nationwide there's no competition you go back to the days when we worked in warren together you think about all the radio stations that covered high school sports and Ooh. the competition for to define your niche within your community and to be able to sell and and to communicate with them. You don't have that nowadays. Nowadays you have, you know, and I I deal with, you know, like this year, last year I was very fortunate, had an opportunity to do high school sports for Z104, which is a Cumulus station, which a friend of mine brought me in a few different times there over the last few years to do it. And, you know, you have certain levels of goals that have to be achieved versus, you know, it was a profitable year. Well, it wasn't a barn buster year. So what happened was this past year, they gave it to another salesperson to take care of it, who is Western Pennsylvania oriented and who had his own. And they have less, you know, talk about regulations. As you remember back in the day when Art and Phil used to talk about the uh, the rights fees for local sports and how it used to drive them crazy. Well, Western Mm. Pennsylvania doesn't have that. Ohio, the, the fees have increased, so the, the, the amount of profitability is less, so they've now moved into Western PA, and of course, what happened for me, and I totally get this, and you will understand this, completely being in the industry like you were uh, all those years, is you have someone local who's familiar with that market, and those schools, and has you know that, and that's what they went with. And I said, no, I, you know, you don't have to explain to me. I understand the market. And I know what happened. And then that's the way it worked. Localism years ago, you could go across the street if you got let go of one radio station, and make your case to be, uh, I have an opportunity to help you here, and this is what I would like to do if you would give me that opportunity. That opportunity doesn't exist because the one, the ownership of two radio stations are two corporations, and they own, they own the entire market. So you don't walk across the street to find another job because that one's already cut that job, so it's not available to you. The
1: analogy I always used to make was, think of a street corner and you've got four corners. Uh, if you own the entire street corner, you're only gonna put a candy store on one corner. You'll put a, a dry cleaner on this corner, you'll put a drug store on this corner, and you'll put a gas station on this corner because you don't want competition with any of your properties. So. Again, you know, when, when you've got just three to five major players out there, you're going to have com- homogenized path, and, and that's what we see now. And unfortunately, it's not only the service to the industry; it's the service to the audience, to the listeners. Radio used to be like a, a best friend, especially AM radio when I was growing up in the '60s. I mean, you knew these guys; they were part of your community. You know, they were local celebrities and heroes. Now it's all voice tracked out of Milwaukee or Santa Fe. You have no connection with these people whatsoever and they have no connection with you. And they couldn't tell you at all what's going on in Akron or Youngstown or in Cleveland because they are thousands of miles away. That, that the bankruptcies that iHeart and other stations are going into may prove to be a resurgence of mom and pop businesses getting back into the business because they got paid a ton of money to sell their stations back in in the late 90s and most of them I'm sure are sitting on a whole lot of capital and just waiting to get their feet back into the water when they can buy stations at pennies on the dollar so it's only going to help not only the industry but it's going to help the audience and consumers as well And, and that's something that I hope I don't know if you're going to see it but uh, that would be my greatest wish uh, after, after the conglomeration, consolidation of the radio industry that we've seen for over the last
0: two decades. Well, I hope those who listen to my podcast on a regular basis and those who come learn more about one of the fine gentlemen I have met in my lifetime, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He's the man, the myth, the legend himself, Jeff Sachs. Sackman, I can't thank you enough for taking the time in your afternoon to do this with me. I've enjoyed it tremendously. I know we covered a million subjects, but you know what? You're always welcome here, my friend, and I want you to know that. And I truly appreciate our friendship over the years because it has been truly an honor to know you and have someone to, who, as you mentioned, with Les Levine and them, you were always one of the people that when I broke into AM radio, I came out of FM. You were one of the guys who truly took a lot of us under wings and showed us how to do the job.
1: I can't think of any higher praise than that, Tim. I truly appreciate it. You know you're part of my family. You have been for over 20 years now. I hope I didn't bore too many people who are online listening to this or who will see this in the future. And uh, I enjoyed myself immensely. And anytime you want me back on, you just give me a shout. I'm more than happy to come and discuss things with you again.
0: All right. Again, my good friend, Jeff Sachs, and we'll be telling you right now, uh, I forgot to mention this. I always do this. This is the most funny thing, Jeff. You think I know how to promote my own promote my own website, but I never do. Always, all the podcasts are available on RadioMDG.com, on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and anywhere you download podcasts. So for Jeff Sachs, I'm Tim and We'll talk to you again. Thanks for listening to One-on-One on Radio MVP.